Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright. Raise the mizzen mast and ship the top sails. It's my favorite dialogue ever. <laughs> I hope that's not true. Today we're talking about Minute 55, which begins with keeping the love alive and ends with 120 million Kelvin. Back on the show from a week ago, we have Eric Deutsch again. Hello, Eric. Hello. I'm happy to be on the helicarrier. <laughs> oh, yes, you made it. We're thrilled to have you up here in the clouds with us. Um, as we uh, discussed last week, you got uh, first dibs on all the minutes for the movie. This was one of your choices as well. Why this minute? For this one line and this one line alone. That man is playing Galaga. He thought we wouldn't <laughs> notice, but we did. <laughs> <laughs> oh it is so so funny it, that that pete is the line of the minute this not whole minute <laughs> is the line of one. the minute this whole minute that whole little speech uh, walking talk speech andy don't you don't you yuck my yum man this is funny oh uh, that's what that's what we're here for we are here for all of this <laughs> all right well let's first start okay we're uh, so in the very end of our last minute, uh, Tony and uh, Phil came walking in together mid-conversation. Tony was, as he was having his conversation with Phil, he was also throwing out a reply to uh, Banner, who was asking a question. And then he uh, very quickly gets back to Colson as they continue walking in here. This is the very end of that conversation. And it was really kind of a follow-up to what Pepper had been talking to Phil about back it uh, back at the apartment or at the penthouse. And what we get here at the very start of this minute is keep love alive. And then Phil walks off. Um, Eric, were you a, a watcher of agents of shield? Uh, that's an understatement. I, I, it's my second favorite TV show of all time, actually. Okay. Well, there, there we there go. <laughs> that's the spirit. Oh God. I'm glad you're here. I hate the hate that that show gets. I love, love, love that show. I will always love that show. Tell Andy why he should just shut up and watch the rest of that show. He's never <laughs> even finished it. Eric, Andy, you stay over there in the corner. He's never even finished it. He never even got through the hard parts. You know, guys like us, when we grew up, what, what do we have? We had a season of The Flash in 1990. And we had the Adam West Batman show reruns. And yeah. that's it. And you know what else we had to suffer through? We had to suffer through Hasselhoff and Knight Rider. He was my superhero. Oh, yes. That's what, you know yes. what? I had Coke Addict, Jan Michael Vincent, and Airwolf. That was my superhero. <laughs> All right? I didn't have anything. <laughs> well, Hasselhoff ended up being Nick Fury, of course. So, uh, yeah, I know. That's actually a good point. <laughs> uh, it is. It is everything that I would have wanted as an 11-year-old comic book reader to be able to watch every single week. It was Marvel Comics Come Alive. Yeah. We had villains from the comic books. We had cool technology from the comic books. It wasn't... To speaking of Knight Rider, it was not just a weekly show every week that had no continuity. There were season-long and multi-season-long arcs. I think it was well-acted. Um, I, I love it. I don't care that I was in my 30s and 40s when it was on the, the air. I, I, I love the show. I think it's great. I love what they did with it. I love the little tweaks they did to uh, comic book continuity. Um, it was it was a great show. I don't really know what else to say. Yeah. No, 
that that you win the podcast, Andy. You've already lost the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I may. Who knows? It was, it was certainly easy to put on while I was at the gym. It's one of those sorts of shows, and it just yeah, I did hit this point where I just felt like, and this is it ends up being my issue with network television. Is it just like there's a, always padding to kind of stretch it out to those uh, twenty three episodes. And so it just felt like this is there's a lot that they're putting in here that isn't as necessary just to get through it. So when did you stop? What season did you stop watching it? Somewhere in season three, I believe. I mean, because seasons like two through five were the real prime. Like, that was the prime stuff. So you kind of bailed before it really. Yeah, I mean, the good stuff had already started, but like there was a lot more good stuff you missed out on. All right, all right. Well, maybe, maybe I will give it a try again. Maybe I'll give it a try. I need an excuse to get back to the gym. So there you go. <laughs> so okay. So you're familiar with the cellist and this whole thing because this is right. essentially yes. the, uh, a nod to. We had this conversation earlier with Pepper asking him about the cellist and and all of this. How um, she moved back to Portland and this is kind of the follow up to that. Tony is now. Is he trying to muscle in on the relationship that Pepper has with Colson? Is it just that he wants to call him Phil too? So you're saying you're saying Tony is jealous of uh, Pepper that she has a friendship with Phil. I think he is, and even and even knows his name is Phil. I think he is. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I I I get that. I think um, I think there's I, I think there is part of it because that that line is about his relationship with Pepper, not about him at all caring about Phil. That's exactly it. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. No, I'm with you on I'm with you on that. I can't believe I'm on your side after what we just went through. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what I do like about it is and this, you know, probably boils down to the writer, uh, the writer director, is that this type of smart entrance into a scene where we're in a in a conversation we're only getting a piece of it. And it was the same thing that happened when, you know, Pepper was asking about the cellist before, because we were watching Tony play around with the uh, the Tesseract uh, hologram, right? That's kind of what, as viewers, we're watching. And so that was very background information. So it's almost a throwaway. And here we get essentially another piece of that throwaway. But the writing is allowing us to kind of keep these characters kind of building in a very smart and clever way. And so I, I like it. I think that it's actually very clever. And, you know, regarding the TV show, I think that it was actually clever of them to kind of continue the thread with the cellist, even if it was just, I think, Pete, you said she was only on for one episode, but they talked about her a lot. I think so, yeah. I, I just appreciate this this tie-in, and I have to remember, like, I, I, I have to go back to that feeling of the opportunity that comes of integrating big screen, small screen, like this, this minute is it kind of represents all of the hope that I had with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. back when they would integrate the things between the big screen, small screen. That was like the, that was, uh, it's just a ticker tape parade. Every time you have these little Easter eggs, because it just felt like they, they had an idea for something bigger and it never, it didn't really end up, you know, going anywhere agents of shield ended up being kind of its own gig you know as it wrapped up the season uh, a lot of missed opportunity there uh, but um you know i i i felt like at this point there was hope i i could have said word for word what you just said you know that that first year or two where they really were trying making a real effort to integrate the show with the movies was great and then once the movies clearly showed that they could care less about integrating with the TV show and, and, and sort of left the TV show 
uh, off to the side uh, with some in, uh, inconsistencies. It was a bit of a bummer as a fan of the show that the movies clearly did not care. Huge bummer because that that's the difference with watching this as a kid and knowing that there's a TV show and sometimes they would you know, plant Easter eggs and watching this as an adult and knowing that the reason they couldn't integrate is because the adults in the room couldn't talk to one another and figure out yep. what the hell to do to make these things better. And yep. that's the that was the disappointing part of watching this in 30s and 40s, uh, it, you know, that that it just felt it, it felt like an empty promise. That's and that is a frustrating element that it's interesting over. I mean, that show premiered, what, 2013? It was like the year after this. Um, I believe. And uh, here we are 10 years later. And it's interesting to see how things have changed so much as far as the small screen versus the big screen. Yeah. I mean, it, it went from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, Agent Carter, a few other uh, Marvel shows, um, Netflix then on ABC, yeah, on ABC, and the Netflix had its shows that for a while seemed like they were going to maybe be incorporated. And then, because, I mean, they talked about, you know, the Battle of Harlem and things like that. They they mentioned these things. It was always like the small screen stuff was treated as, you have to recognize the big stuff yeah. happening in the big screen, but the big screen doesn't have to recognize you. Right. Like, that's kind of the way they kept playing it. Yep. Until Disney kind of bought everything, and suddenly now you had all the shows on Disney Plus that all essentially are like an integral part of phase four and moving forward. That's kind of how they're going to be doing that. But to a point where now they are actually trying to figure out, okay, Hey, let's bring some people back from daredevil. Let's keep that continuity going just, you know, and I mean, there are elements of, I mean, Phil obviously came from the, from the films. There are elements in agents of shield that they did that with, but it is interesting. Like to a certain extent, they have the stuff on Disney Plus, but now they're in a position where they're able to, I guess, continue kind of picking and choosing some of that older stuff that they can integrate if if they feel it fits. And I guess that's where it's going to land. Yeah. And, and I, you know, we don't need to belabor this too much, but I think this is this is, gives us really the opportunity that that I think is so great, because to me, there is only Charlie Cox daredevil right there is only the netflix jessica jones like i think those those were so well cast and so well performed at, by those actors to my eye that the that bringing charlie cox into spider-man you know no way home or home again or home delivery <laughs> no um, way home <laughs> was was like inspired hope and and d'onofrio right there there is kingpin now like there is this is the kingpin um and so i i feel like there's there's just a lot of opportunity like ahead of us still and i i really hope that they make good on those promises of integration to bring in some of what they did so well on the netflix shows uh that had been you know ignored and dismissed well if there's one thing that's good that comes out of all this multiverse nonsense. I suppose that is it that, you know, they can very easily say, sure, the Netflix shows they're in a neighboring multiverse, but to a point where, you know, it, we at least have the same daredevil. We have the same kingpin in this multiverse. And so they can say those stories may not have taken place here, but the characters will bring over. And so, you know, however they're going to play it, at least we're able to kind of keep some of those threads. So that makes me happy. Why does this kingpin not swear at all? And why does he only <laughs> bash heads in behind obstacles? 
<laughs> Why is this daredevil not so serious and moody all the time? Right, right. Why does he have a sense of humor all of a sudden? <laughs> exactly. Anyway. All right. So getting back into our scene. So first of all, just a quick note. Phil takes off for some reason. He is not apparently important enough or doesn't deem the meeting important enough to be a part of the conversation. And nor does Nick Fury. And I I just as I was watching this, it did strike me. I'm like, I wonder why these like they don't stay around and just let the heroes have this conversation. Did either of you have any thoughts on on why it's these four um, specifically plus Maria? I just assume that Nick and Phil had something else they had to do at that exact moment. And I mean, if Nick Fury trusts any two people to be his surrogate in any situation, it's Phil and Maria Hill. And so if Maria Hill's there, from his point of view, he has eyes and ears in that conversation, and she'll report back to him on exactly what happened. I have one potentially more practical reason that those two are gone, and that is because if Fury is in the room, the joke how does Fury see these? He turns, doesn't play. And I kind of <laughs> have a feeling that maybe there was somebody writing this thing who who kind of fell in love with that particular joke. <laughs> and just wanted to say, okay, does he need to be here? Does no, he need to be here? Let's just have him out. <laughs> right, exactly. Because why, why leave Maria? This is the first meeting on the helicarrier of all the superheroes that we had so far. And he leaves Maria Hill. It's because of the joke. That's why the joke was more important than the blocking. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I feel like we run into that a lot over the course of this. Tell me you don't agree. We run into that all the time. But tell me that doesn't make sense. It completely makes sense. <laughs> completely makes sense. It's another writer thing. Yeah. It's a writer thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as far as Phil, it doesn't answer that question, but obviously just <laughs> they just needed to thin out the people around the table for whatever reason. I, I feel like they're at a point, like we're at a point in the movie, we're nearly an hour in, we really want to see our team forming. And so this is really the first opportunity that we have of bringing, I mean, finally, now that Tony has walked into the room, we have five of our six members of the Avengers sitting at this table. They're all here. They're having this conversation. Like, this is the first time that we're at this point where we really are putting our team together. And so I, there is some import to that. And and yes, there is a big question as to why it's Maria Hill, not Nick Fury. But all of that aside, the five main people are here, five of the six. And that's, I think, really what we're meant to take from this, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we get some answers now. We're starting to get them figuring out what's going on. And this really kind of answers some questions we had at the beginning of the season, this whole thing, like, what is going on with this crazy Tesseract? Why is this blue energy shooting all over the place? But I still have a question for both of you. So what they say here, what Bruce says is that, or what Tony says, is the tone, the portal collapsed in on itself um, because apparently it didn't have iridium. And iridium is a stabilizing agent, as he said at the end of the last minute. And so now we know, okay, that's why we had this explosion at the start of the film that destroyed Project Pegasus. But I still am curious, like, what are your thoughts about the way that Eric was talking about the Tesseract and how he's he's um, personified it by labeling it she and saying she's behaving? I don't really understand, but she is behaving. And that's very kind of unscientific to kind of look at it that way. Um, but any thoughts as to how 
the Tesseract is like, if it's just an Iridium thing, that seems very scientific. And it seems like something that Eric would latch onto, as opposed to the Tesseract is just behaving. Any thoughts on the way that that's constructed? I could see it as Eric Selvig is spending probably 20 hour days every day with this thing. And to keep himself sane, he has assign some personification to this thing. He's staring at it, and he's poking it, and he's prodding it, and he's running tests on it, and he's spending more time with it than probably any human or pet he might have. So, he just, you know, much just like some people, they call their car she. He's with this thing all the time, and yeah, he's a scientist, but he's also a person, and uh, I think it's just a sanity defense mechanism. Yeah, that's where I was going to go too. I I I was trying to think if I'm the kind of person who does that. Like what is it in my life that I have personified like that? Like I'm a uh, have I ever named like I don't have computers that I cuz I I have I have a lot of computers. I don't have computers that I name he or she, but I definitely give them identities. Like my computer that I'm my primary computer right now is the Rossi. Like that's an identity that I imbue that. And so I feel like that's where I go with Selvig. Like he is, he like the things that are most important to him as an engineer, as a scientist, he gives an identity out of, out. like, I feel like that's a an, kind of an awesome character nod that he loves this thing because of what's going on in his head and because of the science enough to give it an identity in his life. I think that's cool. Andy, I mean, you must do that with your hats. <laughs> I should. I should do that with all my hats. Absolutely. <laughs> no, it's it's an interesting uh, thing about Eric, for sure. And what I find uh, fascinating about what it's kind of saying about Eric, uh, because, I mean, there's a point in Loki's lair when Clint comes up to him and shows him a picture of the Iridium and the scientist, and they're putting the plan together to go to Stuttgart to steal this Iridium. Right. And and Eric uh, and I can't remember exactly what Clint says, but it's something to the effect of, you know, if it's that important, then then shield is going to if, if you know, they're going to know that we need it. And Eric's response is like, I didn't even know that we needed it. Yeah. And what I think is interesting about the way that these scenes play, and I guess the way that I'm starting to construct it in my head is that. At the beginning of the film, he's misreading the Tesseract. Now, Eric is a man of science. He is very scientific. We've seen plenty of that. But he also, especially since he's uh, been working on the Tesseract, it has kind of opened his mind. I think the, the Mind Stone is more opening his mind than the Tesseract, even though he labels it as the Tesseract opening his mind and all this sort of stuff. But I think there's this element to finally getting the puzzle pieces that he didn't know he needed, which is the Iridium. That is the thing that, uh, as a scientist, he didn't have. And the Tesseract was misbehaving, quote, in quote, because um, it didn't have that. And so it wasn't stable. And so he, probably to your point, Eric, was spending way too much time with it to the point that he was giving it this personality, like, oh, she's misbehaving again. When in reality, it just wasn't stable because it was lacking iridium. And so he finally clicks and puts two and two together and realizes all of that. And I think that's really interesting because as smart a scientist as the film paints Eric to be, as we've kind of seen him to be over the course of several films now, 
I think that there is this sense of human fallibility that we're getting with him, the fact that he didn't have all the pieces. And so he was, even him as a scientist, was kind of misreading the science. And I, I think that's actually kind of an interesting way to kind of look at Eric and this idea that that he didn't know. Yeah, and maybe maybe the lack of iridium, it, it's almost like he was contaminated by the science. Well, he was contaminated by something. And again, I really wish that they kept in the film that he had been, uh, like his mind was somehow still linked to Loki and he was doing all this for Loki. Like that would have made so many things make more sense at the start of the film. But anyway. All the things. You're saying that uh, tied into um, the, the credit scene from Thor, is that what you're saying? Exactly. Like, yeah, you know, we were. Yeah, okay. Because it, yeah. it seems, yeah. I don't know. I mean, how did you read that, that post credit scene? I, I was under the impression he was already under his mind control, so it was strange that he then wasn't at the beginning of the movie, yeah. Right, and then then immediately gets mind-controlled. Yes. <laughs> right. yes. Like, I, I, I feel like, it, uh, as I was saying at the beginning of the show, it felt like, it. Like, wait a minute, I thought he was under his control, because why is he doing all of this if not to be under his control, to bring his master here? But It turns out it, it was, was for science all along. <laughs> right. <laughs> Such a strange, uh, such a strange thing. But um, anyway, we are getting into this conversation. Tony is here, and now we're getting some answers. But before we do, Tony's nickname tracker number five. We've got Point Break. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of all the nicknames that uh, he's throwing around, Eric? Uh, I, you know, I mean, it fits with his character. I mean, I don't, you know, Point Break. I don't think is one of his better ones. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, it, it it fits with his, you know, persona. Do you have a favorite? I'm trying to think of them off the top of my head now. Um, what are some of them? Um, uh, let's see. Shakespeare in the Park was the one before this. Right. Right. And then we had, uh, there were a few of them that all came pretty rapid fire. There's Reindeer Games. <laughs> reindeer <laughs> Games. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all when he shows up in Stuttgart. He throws out, uh, let's see, Reindeer Games, Rock of Ages, Capsicle. Capsicle, that's right. That's the, from this one. Shakespeare in, Shakespeare in the Park. And now we have uh, this one with him saying a point break. I, I'll, I'll, choose, I'll choose Shakespeare in the Park. It, it, you know, he lives in New York, so it's a, a good New York reference. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pete, I don't know. Did I ask you which one was your favorite up to this point? Well, that's the problem is up to this point. I, I'm going to be with be on uh, point break. Uh, for up to this point, but spoiler, my favorite for any character that he gives any other Avenger comes in the battle at the end. Absolutely my favorite. Oh, okay. I think of the five that we've had so far, I like Reindeer Games. I just think that's a really funny uh, name to throw at Loki <laughs> because of his big antlers. <laughs> All right. Uh, but this is the moment. This is, I don't know, I guess, is this... Uh, a moment of truce between the two of them like just uh, you know we have that moment between tony and thor as they kind of uh thor kind of looks at him again this is still we're still in the period of the marvel cinematic universe where thor is a little more uh glowery right he just kind of looks at people with these intense shakespearean looks it's not quite i mean he'll be throwing around some pretty comical lines later but still he's pretty pretty serious still doesn't he call it what does he call him in endgame doesn't he call thor uh lebowski in endgame yes he does that, yes, he that does. might be my favorite of all time <laughs> we'll get there i'll see you in like 25 years yeah just a few years a few years down the road mm -hmm. 
Now, Pete, you love the bit where Tony walks in and, and plays ship captain here. So much. So much. Forget about it. I love it. Why do you love it so much? Because it's the best thing ever. It's just awesome. It is exactly, it's it's like, it, it defines why this was perfectly cast for for uh, Robert Downey Jr. It is all of his kind of, I'm sort of drunk, billionaire industrialist, uh, philanthropist, playboy, and uh, it, it is non sequitur, uh, and yet he's totally in control, and everybody is watching him, and you get the feeling that he thinks they're watching because he's he thinks they think he's cool, and in fact, they don't at this point. Like, he's a disrupting influence, and I <laughs> love all of the social complexity that plays out here because it just, it is it exudes my sort of... Uh, uh, ADHD social anxiety that I think I'm doing something cool and I can't actually see that actually my flies down kind of a, that that kind of thing like I just <laughs> I live for it I live for it it is great uh, quippy dialogue and it's perfect coming out of Downey's mouth what do you think Eric I mean and this yeah this this is prime Robert I agree it's prime Robert Downey Jr. this minute I mean you know he he, he covers up the eye at first he don't even know what the hell he's doing I know. Uh, you know, and, and it's a nice bit of physical acting where he like, you know, he kind of contorts his face before he speaks his line about how does he do it. He's just, just so confused. Uh, you know, the body language, Maria Hill with the deadpan, he turns. And it turns out, though, really this whole thing he's doing here, the stuff with the, the wacky stuff about being the captain and covering his eye up and, and the, the, the Galaga stuff, which is the reason I chose this minute. The whole thing is sleight of hand. Mm-hmm. It's all just to get everyone not paying attention to his hand where he puts the tiny little bug thing under the console because they're listening to him ramble. They think this guy is insane. He's got Maria talking about fear returning. He's making it like he's just checking out the controls like, hmm, this is interesting. What is all this stuff? And the whole thing is one big sleight of hand to get that little thingy there under the console. It's great. He's drunken master. i mean i i definitely agree with all of that maybe it's just i don't like uh robert down jr's delivery just on those specific pirate lines about raise the mizzen mask (laughs) my Uh, favorite how are we friends (laughs) like the galaga bit which he he improv that bit like that works for me but those two lines about raise the mizzen mask ship the topsails they just they end up falling flat, and I feel like throughout the film, um, I we talked about this. Uh, I don't know a little while back, but like there are points when Robert Downey Jr. is uh, we're we're getting the close up shots of his face as we're getting the HUD shots, and the way that he's delivering his lines sometimes just don't feel like like the energy just feels off, like something just doesn't feel like it's hitting quite as as well as I would expect it to in those moments, and. This is also one of those moments, and it's he's not. It's not that you know singular or that single close up of his face. This is actually in the scene, but the, just something the way that he's delivering it. I just I uh, like. I feel like John Favreau would have had a better handle on directing him through a scene like this, and I just I just don't feel like it plays the way that I expect it to for Robert Downey Jr. And so maybe it's just a directorial thing. Sometimes I find because I I feel this way through this film, and I'll I'll be curious to, when I revisit Ultron if I feel it as well. That sometimes Downey Jr. is just not, it, I don't know, it's just, there's something like he doesn't feel present or something the way that he's throwing his lines out there. 
See, I read that as part of the part of the character bit that he's playing here. And I know you've we've you've shared that that quibble about the the stuff that's uh, recorded inside the HUD, and I I absolutely respect that. I uh, but for me, this his sort of weird kind of distance and nonchalance, at least as I read it, is is part of the gag. Uh, but I get it, and I, I also think I mean you you I, I think I have a greater affinity for uh, Whedon's direction here as a comic director than you do. Probably. Am I speaking for you? Probably. I mean, I don't, I've not watched a ton of his stuff. And so uh, I just don't, uh, so I never jived with it as much as, as you did. Yeah. The fact that There's I said a lot of, jive probably I did, in a whole other I circle. Was just, I was just going to say, <laughs> I was just going to say we've watched all different stuff. <laughs> all different stuff. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, but Andy's whole opinion on TV's shows is calling the question by him not liking Agents of Shield. So you know, already broken. Yeah, right. Already broken. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. All right, Galaga. Uh, Now, my first question with Galaga is: Do you think? What do you think Steve thinks Tony is talking about? (laughs) I don't think he. He has no clue. They even show him turn around and look like, huh? What? He has no idea what he's talking about. I think that may be my favorite shot of this whole conversation <laughs> when it cuts to Steve and he's like looking around like, what, what? <laughs> that is a very funny reaction shot that works really well for me. But now I want to talk about Maria Hill because I don't know, Eric, have you watched all of the kind of extended and deleted scenes from this film? Uh, probably at some point, but I don't, I don't think I remember them. There's a line of story following Maria Hill. The film would have started with her being um, being questioned by the World Security Council about everything that had happened. And it was like, it would have taken place two days after the Battle of New York, and she would have been, she, she talks about Fury. She really did not like Nick Fury. She did not like that he brought the Avengers in. She was very negative. And then over the course of the story, the film, you see more of these, these um, scenes of her as she's kind of going through her interrogation until the end of the film. She has this change of heart. She realizes, you know what, I think that he actually was right. And that's kind of her character arc over the course of the film that we're seeing through these um, uh, kind of, these little scenes of her being questioned. And so the way that the film plays when you know all of that is that Maria Hill really is not happy with Nick Fury. She doesn't like how he's running things and she is pretty, um, she doesn't like the Avengers. She doesn't like any of these people. And when you know that, that that's kind of the foundation for the way that this whole film was constructed, the way that Maria Hill is playing all of her scenes is really like, judgmental and she doesn't like any of these people and so you know as we have been watching the film uh, minute by minute every time maria hill's in a scene we're always looking how is she reacting in this scene with nick fury are we seeing that element of it otherwise how is it playing if we since we don't get any of that and i guess that's my question here how does maria hill play here does it seem like she doesn't like that these people here are here and she's having to babysit them or does it really just end up playing like she just doesn't like tony this is fascinating to hear this because I did not know this. And I did stand out to me her reaction shots in this minute. And it did come across to me that she just basically thinks Tony Stark is completely insufferable and she doesn't want anything to do with him. That's how I viewed it, not knowing what you just told me. You know, for me, 
I, I don't know, maybe that's yet another reason why it, it plays that he's out of the room and she gets to run the room in this minute, you know, that she's, um, uh, it, it, it sort of plays to why they're not, uh, any sequence when they're not together, it makes more sense knowing that they did, they had some disdain for each other or at least her for him. It is interesting. And as you say, Eric, it does really feel like the fact that they're leaving all of this in here makes it read like she just doesn't like Tony at all. And the fact that he's, you know, playing the way that he is, it just kind of uh, rubs her the wrong way. It doesn't necessarily play into the fact that she doesn't like these people and doesn't like what Nick Fury is trying to do. But it's interesting because what I enjoy about film, and this is what's so interesting about kind of the, the challenges of being an editor, is having a story thread with Maria Hill that is one thing, and then having to extract all of that, but watching every scene with her and going, does this play by itself, or will we have to cut this too, or cut around the fact that she's even here? But it plays, and that's what I think is interesting here, is that this one actually does play like she just really doesn't like Tony. And I think it's interesting. Yeah. Well, we get to, uh, to kind of the end of this minute, which, you know, I, I got to say, I love the fact that this is, this is again, this is Tony that I like. I like that he is going through this list of things and like, you know, about the packet, Selvig's notes, the extraction uh, theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? Yeah. I love that to me is prime Tony, like so much more than the Mizzen Mass stuff. I love the way that he delivers that because he is the person who knows all of this stuff. And this is also the point where he and Banner recognize that with each other as they start. We only get the beginning of it, but we're getting that point where the two of them are starting to kind of nerd out with each other. And I kind of love that that happens here. Do you like uh, do you like the, the the dynamics between these characters? Yeah, I think they, they they play very well off each other, especially because, you know, Mark Ruffalo plays Bruce Banner with this, you know, constant nervousness, um, trying to maintain an even keel. Um, so he's sort of the straight man to Tony's wackiness. And they're not yet overwrought, right? Like, we get them later and they're overwrought. Here, it's fun to watch them feel each other out. And and you can kind of see that Steve has no patience for any of, of this. He's ready to just get to it. But I, I like watching them in this state of this sort of liminal state of uncertainty with each other. I think it's well written and well performed. And later, they're just really tense the next time they're in and around this table together. We're also getting the setup for the power source. They're going to need some sort of power source uh, to to essentially provide the high energy density to the uh to get the tesseract up and running kelvin is really hot at 120 million of them it is really really hot yes i i googled that by the way to see i converted that to fahrenheit and celsius using google so oh what, wh- where did you land what did you land 120 on? million kelvin if you're a fahrenheit user is 215 million 999 540.33 degrees fahrenheit pretty hot and if you're a if you're a celsius person that's 119 million nine hundred ninety nine thousand seven hundred twenty six point eight five celsius degree i feel like that's kind of my summers here in phoenix actually <laughs> it's pretty close I'm yeah pretty sure. right <laughs> What's what's really what's actually interesting of this? This is the, the sun. The surface of the sun is five thousand seven hundred and eighty and seventy eight Kelvin. Apparently, is that even possible? That's what Google says. 
That's what Wikipedia says. Um, 100 million Kelvin and up, that's really at the point where you are uh, creating fusion reactions. And I was actually Googling of this trying to kind of learn a little bit more about it like what is is it is that hot possible and just last year september 2022 researchers were able to generate fusion at 100 million kelvin for 20 whole seconds uh, as they continue trying to find a way to kind of create some fusion energy that's all they've been able to do is 20 seconds though where do they put it for 20 seconds like where does that kind of heat where does it exist (laughs) That's a good question. So what they do uh, is they said the biggest problem is dealing with the heat that is generated, which is in the millions of degrees. Materials could not hold plasma that hot, of course. So it's levitated with magnets. Magnets hold that kind of heat. Are you kidding me right now? That's what it is. That's what it is. Isn't that crazy? Crazy. Yeah. Now we're going to talk about this, unfortunately, not with Eric, but next time, because Steve and Bruce are going to kind of geek out on a lot of this stuff and throw out a lot of terms that, to a certain extent, scientists kind of like, yeah, they actually got the science right in this conversation, which is kind of fun. So I'm looking forward to more of that conversation. But it's it's interesting as they talk about the Kalum barrier and all that sort of stuff. That's amazing. I think they I think they name dropped my last name in that during that conversation as well. Uh, if memory serves. Well, we'll have to pay attention. You should have picked that one. I know. I should, I think they mentioned something <laughs> like the Deutsch principle or something like that. I don't know. I'd have to rewatch the minute. Well, we'll pay attention and we'll call you out <laughs> if they do. So, I just am surprised that they haven't called out Chekhov yet, Pete, because yeah. we certainly uh, already have had the Chekhov power source introduced in this film. Right. <laughs> wow. All right. Uh, well, I don't know. Any last things in this minute for either of you? Yes, I want to talk more about uh, Galaga guy. Oh, um, okay. Since that's the main reason I wanted this minute. Yes, um, yes, yes, absolutely. So, uh, according to the online wiki, uh, and I did not look, unfortunately, at the footnotes to see what the source of this information is, but this this is the <laughs> Marvel MCU wiki online. Yep. The Galaga guy, that's what he's called, is a shield carrier bridge technician stationed on the helicarrier in 2012. He frequently plays Galaga on the job, and at one point was caught by Tony Stark. He was a victim of the snap, but was later resurrected in the blip. Hey. He, in fact, was playing Galaga and was about to beat his high score, but before he could do so, Thanos snapped his fingers and he was wiped out (laughs) and did not beat his high score. Oh, that is so funny. That's fantastic. Uh. <laughs> what, Sorry, uh, what, uh, guy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> What's funny about that is of all the people who get snapped, you know, we were talking about this in a previous minute. Like if if half of the people on the helicarrier suddenly disappeared because of the snap, could the remaining staff be able to support the helicarrier enough to like land it at least, or would it just immediately uh, not have enough hands on deck and it would crash? Um, and I guess the answer is at least at least we know as far as uh, Galaga guy is concerned, he wouldn't have been working anyway. He would have just been playing Galaga. Yes, he was just playing Galaga. Absolutely. So it wouldn't have mattered if he was one of the survivors. How delightful <laughs> is it 
that they put they wrote in a Galaga like emulator into the helicarrier <laughs> system. <laughs> I wonder if it's a dumb terminal. You know, he could like play it anywhere on the ship. He could just log into his and, Galaga. And the thing is, I mean, it's a bit of a foreshadow from the final battle. Right. Course, you know, aliens dropping down from space. Vaguely bug like aliens. You know, vaguely bug like. So, you know, I I I'm I I can't imagine that was a coincidence. Right, of all the game choices. Uh, so that's pretty cool too. I mean Galago it was my favorite arcade game as a kid back in the 80s and the days, the glory days of the arcades. Um, playing it as an adult, I don't like it quite as much anymore, but I, it's, uh, I think I die too quickly now because I'm out of practice, maybe. Yeah, the only <laughs> game worth <laughs> playing anymore is Joust. I never played Joust. Joust. One of my favorites. I loved Joust. But Galaga was great, too. All of these games. Space Invaders, yeah. like, they knew space how to invaders. make games. In well, the don't even get sure. started on the Space Invaders Galaga camp because that was divisive in our arcade growing up. Divisive. <laughs> well, I can understand. I, I was, I think between the two, probably more likely to jump onto Space Invaders than Galaga. I could have called that. If only because I felt like I could handle just the fact that they just came down one level at a time. Right. <laughs> Whereas Galaga, you, you're playing, and then all of a sudden the entire squadron like does dive bomb on you. you know? <laughs> too much, Galaga. <laughs> just too much. Um, I like I like the line reading from uh, Tony. He says, you know, he thought we wouldn't notice, but we did. Not I didn't notice, but I did. I just I thought I think it's funny how you know it is him. It's it's not a we. It is it should be I. But it's typical Tony Stark, just snark coming through there using the Wii. And my last bit of information about Galaga Guy is the actor, Warren Cole. I actually have seen this guy in something else, incredibly enough. Uh, there was a series, an anthology series uh, 10, 20 years ago called Masters of Horror, where uh, famous horror directors each directed one episode of uh, an anthology TV series. And there's an episode where he plays a hitchhiker who kills people that pick him up, and Michael Moriarty plays a trucker who kills hitchhikers that he picks up. Oh. So Michael Moriarty picks him up, and then there's the hour-long cat-and-mouse game between the two of them of, you know, who's going to kill who. Wow. What was that called? That sounds extraordinarily familiar. Uh, the, the show is called Masters of Horror. I don't remember the name of the specific episode, but, I, you know, it would be easy to find. Uh, I'm you looking know, it up right now. It was called yeah. Walker. There you go. No, yeah. no, sorry. No. He was he was the oh, walker. Right, the he walker. plays the walker, right. Yeah. yeah. Right. What yeah. is the episode title? Uh interesting. Yeah, those Masters of Horror episodes. Um there were some really, really good ones that they made. There were some that weren't so good. But but that I haven't seen that one though. I'm gonna have to check that one out. Pick me up is what the episode is called. There we go. Yeah. We'll we're gonna save the IMDB game for Warren Cole uh for when we actually get to see him. At the end of the scene, uh, you won't be here for it, Eric. But uh, at least, at least Pete uh, might know a little bit more about Warren now than he did before. Well, I'll certainly have seen this episode because I'm going to watch it. It sounds so familiar. I feel like I might have seen it. Like that whole setup sounds so familiar to me. I'm going to have to find it. Mick Garris directed it. Fantastic board yeah. uh, director. So. All right. Well, let's wrap things up for today here on Minute 55. Eric, uh, tell everybody again about your shows and where they can tune into those. So um, my current newest project is I'm co-hosting the Color Minutes of uh, a show that is going through Memento, one scene at a time. It's part of a larger podcast by Bubba Wheat, which is called It's Time to Rewind, where he goes to different 
movies that involve time travel or time loops. And the current season he's doing is Memento. So I'm co-hosting all of the color scenes for that. And in the past, I was the co-host for Escape from New York Minute and Flash Gordon Minute. And all these shows are on all your favorite podcatchers. Fantastic. We'll have links to those in the show notes, everybody. Check those out. If you don't see the show notes in your podcatcher, just go to our website, marvelmovieminute.com, where you can find them there. You can also learn about our membership, uh, where you can uh, get early access to your episodes. You can get hiatus episodes, uh, episodes with no ads, all that good stuff. So check that out. And that's it for today. We'll be back uh, next week with new guests. Should be fun. Eric, thanks again so much. And Pete, thanks as always. Andy, I found Colson. Next week, I'll show you. <laughs> Great. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. <laughs>